In Sydney, we have a main street in the city called George Street, and uh, there was a man who used to um, roam up and down George Street in his lunch hour, and he was known, his name was Frank Jenner. He was converted out of a very rough background, and uh, he saw it as his goal every day at lunchtime to approach up to 10 people and ask them one question. He was known as Jenner of George Street. A book was written about him. He was known as the evangelist of the single sentence sermon. And he would stop people and he'd say, excuse me, sir, excuse me, madam, may I ask you one question? If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? I'll leave you to ponder that. And away he'd go. And a remarkable fruit came from just that one sentence, uh, one question that was asked. The man who wrote the book Jenner of George Street writes after Jenner died and went to heaven, he writes of his experience of walking along George Street with his wife. I want to read this part of the book he wrote. We stop outside the Sydney Town Hall, we see a young man who has a placard, love is the fulfilling of the law. We stop to observe him. He's slim, he's in his early 20s, a cap so well pulled down over his short blonde hair that we don't see the silver studs in both eyebrows until we're actually talking to him. He's open, friendly, turns the board so that we can read on the other side, let love be without hypocrisy. It's true, he says, isn't it? He challenges with a smile. Love is everything. Yes, I reply, it is scriptural and it is very true. Are you a Christian? Oh, yes, he says, with his eyes lighting up. I'm on fire for Jesus. He's all my life. And what's your spiritual preference, he asks. I'm a Christian too, I reply. I believe that the Lord Jesus died for my sins on the cross and rose again and being justified by faith, I have peace with God. Praise the Lord, brother, he says, with a firm handshake. We're about to part when a thought strikes me. Where do you meet? Do you worship somewhere? He throws his hands out, shakes his head and gazes up. Oh, not really, anywhere, out here, you know? Another thought comes to me. Why do you wear those rings in your eyebrows? Fashion, he says, just fashion man. I say, doesn't it say in the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, is it, that we should not pierce our skin or tattoo ourselves, I ask, testing him? Now, when I read that, a great book about a great man, I was profoundly disappointed. I asked, testing him, more likely testing God. On what basis do we take a new covenant believer back under the constraints, the rules and regulations of the old covenant? On what basis do we do that according to scripture? Uh, I was part of a gym in Sydney, about half the size of this area here, a small gym. I would get there early in the morning. It was owned by a Roman Catholic man. The two other men who were there very early in the morning also were Roman Catholics, and I was the only non-Roman Catholic. I knew that they liked me because they were rude to me. That's how Australians show their affection, Australian men. They were having a go at me because I was the only Protestant. Um, the thing that struck them was this. They could not understand about what I believed. They could not understand how I could be so, so sure. They did not know where certainty came from because salvation to the Roman Catholic is a matter of trusting in Jesus plus trusting in yourself. 
and you blend the two together and you can never be sure that what you do is enough to satisfy God's requirement of you. So that technically, uh, assurance is actually sinful according to Roman Catholic dogma. You cannot be sure because you cannot be sure that you'll fulfil all your duties before Almighty God. Now that raises the question that is so dominant in this chapter, chapter 15, a major turning point of the book of Acts. Am I justified by Jesus plus my obedience? But my performance, my obedience is so up and down. Now, you see, uh, the world around us says we don't need Jesus. All we have to do is to be good. But we know that there is a religious world which says I need Jesus partially to get me going, but I need to finish it off. He puts me on the starting blocks, but I then need to take over from there. Now, if you look at Acts 15 here, you'll know that the first missionary journey, Barnabas and Paul has just finished, and the second missionary journey is about to start. And so it's really an important question, isn't it? What is the gospel which is to be taken to the ends of the earth? What is the gospel which is at this very centre of the purpose of God to go to the end of the earth? Because God will not bless a false gospel and indeed, a false gospel produces false disciples. Only the true gospel produces true disciples. And the issue here is this. What is the ground of my relationship with God? Is it Jesus Christ? And do I need to add anything to that? Do I need to supplement the work of Jesus Christ? Is it a matter of God saves me or God saves me with my help? Where do you stand? Is it a matter of trusting in what God has done or trusting in what I do or trusting in what God has done and what I must do? Now, that's the question. Uh, last year, I met a man who's 84 years of age. Those of you who think you, you ought to be retired and settled back, this man had just formed his own missionary society. He's the only missionary. It's called Uakika, which is the Swahili word for certainty. And three or four times every year he goes to East Africa and he conducts what he calls grace clinics for African evangelists. Now he said the gospel according to the African evangelist, the typical evangelist is this, you come to Jesus, you believe in him and you'll have your sin forgiven and new life. Now when you do that, here are the Ten Commandments. Now you've got to keep them to make sure you make it to the end. That, friends, is not the gospel. That is not good news. Because whatever you give me to do, I can't do it. It's either all Jesus or it's not good news. It's not momentous news. And he's quite right to be expending himself, training African evangelists to preach the true gospel, putting your trust in that which God has done. Now, if you look at Acts 15 here, you'll see that the issue, according to verse 1, is circumcision. Verse 1, unless you are circumcised, these people who come down from James, unless you are circumcised, elsewhere they're called missionaries from Jerusalem, have come down to say, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. I never get excited when someone says, our church has sent out more missionaries than we've ever sent out, yeah? What I want to know is, are they good missionaries? Are they just going to add to the confusion that's already there? These men also were missionaries coming down from Jerusalem. Go down there to Galatia and get those Gentiles circumcised. Do you think that's helpful? And I guess the church could say, we've sent out more missionaries from Jerusalem. But what sort of missionaries? 
Verse 5, filtered out a bit, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Here's the Ten Commandments, do that. And get yourself circumcised too to regularise yourself. Now the gospel, therefore, that they're saying is put your faith in Jesus and his work plus be circumcised. Nothing wrong with circumcision. You can imagine how this spreads through the church. You can imagine being in Galatia. What's wrong with old Harry this morning, a young man? Oh, Harry's walking around in great pain. What's happened, Harry? Oh, I got myself circumcised for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Oh, that's dedication, isn't it? Everybody should do that. All you young men, you go Harry's way. Harry, you've compromised the gospel. Either God does it or it's not good news. Chapter 14, verse 28, you'll see that Barnabas and Paul come back to Syrian Antioch. And it is from there they spent a long time with the disciples in Galatia. And I put it to you that it is there, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the Apostle Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, which is exactly on this issue. Please keep your finger there and let's go and have a very quick summary of what the letter to the Galatians is all about. Uh, so you go over to Romans 1, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. So it's about 30 pages over. Keep your finger there back in Acts 15. So here Paul is writing to Galatia. There is no city of Galatia. Galatia is an area like northern Tasmania. It's an area. And so the letter is to the Galatian area. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in this letter. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That is the gospel which includes circumcision. It's no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Now, I think that generally, even within the church, we're fairly, we're fairly soft on the gospel. You can be soft around the edges. Here the Apostle Paul says that the gospel he preached was not a version. One version and there are other versions. It is the only gospel. And if anybody preaches another gospel apart from the gospel I preach, or if I come back to you, he says, and I say, well, I've changed my mind, let me be cursed. This is a serious matter. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. I did not receive this gospel from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul didn't make this gospel up. This came by revelation. That source was in God himself. It is his gospel. Now, this gospel, therefore, is the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 4. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on our, the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. They came saying, we'll add this little bit to it. No, we won't. And you've got that brilliant verse. Look at verse 16. It's a brilliant verse because Paul says one thing three times and the opposite three times. Look at verse 16. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, 
but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Three times he says it's only by faith in Jesus, three times, and the opposite, it's not by works. It's not what we do. And then he comes to these verses, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Have a look at what he says there. These are brilliant verses. You foolish Galatians. If you read the very conservative English translator, J.B. Phillips, who translated the New Testament back in the 1960s, very conservative, steel-rimmed glasses, and read the way he translates those words, this is what he says. You dear idiots of Galatia. You're idiots. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law, that is, by an award because you were good, or by believing what you heard, or by putting your trust in the Lord Jesus? And then go down to verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. It's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through faith in Christ Jesus. So by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he concludes, chapter 5, verse 2. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Do you see? You've come out from law. By going under, just partially, you're going under the whole umbrella of law. If you just do that one thing, then you're putting yourself under obligation to the whole law. Does that mean Paul saying, well, it's indulgence, do whatever you like? No, look at verse 13 of chapter 5. You brothers were called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, use it to serve one another. How then am I am to live? Am I to live? Verse 16. Live by the Spirit. Verse 18. Be led by the Spirit. Verse 25. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit will drive you back to Christ. Now here's the great truth. For a number of years, four years, I was on the pastoral staff of a church. Young men would come to me and they'd say, oh, look, I've been a Christian five years. Everybody tells me here that I've got to keep the Ten Commandments or God won't be happy with me. I'm starting to think that God is like my father. My father, when I do what he wants me to do, he's perfectly good. But when I don't do what he, when I do contrary to what he wants, he distances himself from me. He is aloof. Is God like that? No! He is not like that. He has given Jesus Christ to be in an unconditional relationship with you. You are with him based on what Jesus Christ has done. Am I a good Christian? No. You are a perfect Christian because you stand in a perfect representative. Jesus Christ. The basis of redemption is the work of Christ. And the fruit of that is a renewed life. Now, I used to invite my friends at the gym whenever I was giving a lecture in the evening at college, come along and listen. And one night they came, and I remember I gave a lecture for two hours. 
And what we'd do is we'd turn up to the gym 5am in the morning and we'd work out till about 6.15 and then we'd go to the coffee shop and have coffee till about 8 o'clock. It'd work off the effect of the gym. And this particular morning I said to uh, my friend, what did you think of the lecture last night? He said, I thought it was brilliant. I said, what did you think was so brilliant about it when you said two comes before three? Now, you see, there's nothing brilliant about that. But the point I was making was from Exodus chapter 20. And God says in Exodus chapter 20, you'll know that's the statement of the Ten Commandments, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who redeemed you. Therefore, live this way. God didn't say, if you live this way, I will redeem you. He said, I have redeemed you to Israel, and therefore the fruit of that is that you will live this way. He redeemed them by the blood of the Passover lamb under the old covenant. The way they are to live, therefore, is live consistently with the Ten Commandments. But that's what God says. He never tells us what without telling us why. And the reason why he's telling us what to do is always you've been redeemed. Well, here's the problem. Back to Exodus, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 15. Verses 1 to 5, these men come. Verse 24 of uh, Acts 15 tells us that they came actually without authorization. And they were teaching that circumcision was a necessary additive. The result of this verse 2 is that there was a sharp dispute and the church at Antioch, which is basically a Gentile uncircumcised church, finds this very disconcerting. And so they ask Paul and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem and represent their view. And on the way along, they see uh, various other churches like Phoenicia and Samaria. And the brothers are very glad to welcome them. But verse 4, when they report to Jerusalem, we are left in suspense. Everything they told, everything that God had done. But we don't know what the attitude of the Christian church in Jerusalem, which is the mother church of all the churches. We don't know uh, what they're going to, how they're going to respond to this issue. So a debate takes place. And if you look at the details of the debate, that is in verses 6 to 12. Why is it that God released Peter from prison when Herod put him in prison in chapter 12? Because Peter still had this appearance. Peter still had things to do. And I take it that as long as God leaves us on this earth, he has things for us to do. When his purpose with us is over, he'll take us into glory. We'll graduate. But Peter still has this testimony. And notice, we know that the year precisely is 49 AD. Peter is the primary apostle. He takes the lead. And after this, we do not hear from him again in the book of Acts. This is why he's been released from prison. Notice what Peter says first in verse 7. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. I'm telling you I was there. They heard the gospel from me. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. Brothers, I want to remind you that I didn't do this this is something which God did. He showed his acceptance of people who are not circumcised. Point two. This means, verse 9, that God is not prejudiced. He made no distinction between us and them. He purified their hearts by faith, just as he purified our hearts by faith. We were circumcised. They were uncircumcised. They were purified. We were purified. Circumcision made no difference. Here is the principle. Verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God 
by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. We haven't been able to do the law, so why are you requiring them to do it? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved by grace, just as they are saved by grace. It is God's unmerited favour. It is contrary to desert. Now, that is what Peter says. Now look at what happens in verse 12. Notice the order of Paul and Barnabas is shifted because Barnabas was sent out by the Jerusalem church. So here, Barnabas's name comes first. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Did God approve, therefore, of this ministry to the Gentiles? Of course he did. The laws of creation are his laws. And yet notice that God lifts the laws of creation and does miraculous signs and wonders through us. This gives accreditation to the ministry that we're having to the uncircumcised Gentiles. He suspends the laws of creation in order that the gospel can be communicated to them. Therefore, our ministry to the Gentiles is accredited. He's given the spirit to them. He gave us the ability to do wonders and signs for them. Now, notice, on the basis of this debate... Here is the decision, verses 13 to 21. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the, the, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. Notice they shared the same mother Mary, but not the same father. James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, summarises. And look in verse 15 to 18. What does he do? He quotes what God has said. He quotes Amos. Amos told us centuries ago that God would rebuild his fallen tent, and that his fallen tent would not only contain people from Israel, but would contain also people from a Gentile background. The remnant of men, verse 17, may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. So in other words, notice, we should not be surprised that God is now saving the Gentiles because Amos said he would. Now, notice the qualities of this debate. If you're ever in a church meeting and there's some debate about some proposal, what is the basis of this debate? One, I remind you of what God has done, and two, I remind you of what God has said. What God has done is quite consistent with what God has said. God has brought the Spirit to the Gentiles, and God said in Amos that he would bring the Spirit to the Gentiles. And so the debate is resolved on that basis. God is consistent. He does what he said he would do. And there follows a letter. And the letter goes to the churches. And because it's an important letter, we know that things in Acts that are important are repeated three times. And sure enough, 19 to 21, first account of this letter. Verse 23, the second account. And there's a third listing of this letter in chapter 21. And notice that the letter urges, verse 20, abstention from, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. In other words, tell the Gentiles in Galatians that if they are to have fellowship with Jewish Christians, then they should be careful the way they exercise their liberty and therefore tell them to abstain from these things. He said, now wait on. <laughs> I can see that abstaining from uh, food polluted by idols, eating food that's been offered to an idol, or eating the meat of an animal that hasn't been strangled properly, 
or stop eating blood, I can see that they're matters of liberty, neither here nor there, so therefore stop it for the sake of table fellowship. But if you're having some adultery, don't do that either for the sake of table fellowship. There's nothing here nor there, surely, about sexual immorality. Well, some people say, oh, no, what the word used here is the word that a man should not marry his daughter or a man should not marry his sister. They should marry, not marry within a prohibited relationship. But what is that word? The word is the Greek word porneia. It is the normal word, quite correctly translated, sexual immorality. So how can sexual immorality something which is objective, morally, against the will and mind of God, be placed with three other things which are matters of liberty. So what do you say about that? I think the only thing we can say about that is that this must be no contravention of verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. But those of you who are in Galatia, you know that before you came to Christ, you practised at the pagan temple. And you know that you would often go to the pagan temple where you would drink blood. You would often go to the pagan temple where you would eat meat that's been offered to your God. And you know that you would often go to the pagan temple where you would eat the meat of strangled animals that hadn't been bled properly. And you know that you'd go to the pagan temple and have sexual intercourse with the temple prostitute in order to ensure the fertility of your crops. That's all behind you. You cannot walk with Christ, one foot with Christ and one foot in paganism. You must realise that what we are saying to you is that you must be completely uncompromised and sold out to the Lord Jesus and don't seek to be having a bet each way. Your repentance must be clear. And those activities, the four activities listed in verse 20, are typical of the old empty way of life and you have left that life behind, and so leave it behind. And remember, verse 11, that it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus you have left it behind, and there is to be no double living. Your freedom is undisturbed, but your freedom must not become licence. And so the letter ensures the integrity of Gentile profession. Look down to verse 30. The men were sent off with a letter. They went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Why? Because the gospel's integrity is upheld. The ministry to the Gentiles is validated. Those who came down from Jerusalem to disturb the Gentile believers are repudiated. But the tension between Gentile believers and Jewish believers continues to be an issue in the life of the church, as we can see from Romans 14 and 15. But the integrity of the gospel is upheld and the integrity of Christian community is preserved. Say, so, well, what's Luke doing then? Look at verse 36. It's in this context that of great unity that Luke talks about the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. You see, in the first missionary journey, John Mark had left them and Paul had interpreted that as desertion, but Barnabas sees it in a better light. 
And we know that Paul changed his mind because in his last letter he writes and says, send Mark to me um, and tell him to bring the scrolls. But for now, there is a severe falling out, a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And we now have two missionary teams. Barnabas takes John Mark and Paul takes Silas. And in the providence of God, Silas probably is a better partner for Paul because he is a Roman citizen. And Paul is going to claim his Roman citizenship. And if he's with Silas, Silas can also claim his Roman citizenship. So tragedy as disagreement is, in the providence of God, it works out for that which is good for the gospel and its purpose. You say, well, wait on. Look at this. Have a look at chapter 16. In this context, verse 1, he came to Derby and then to Lystra. Paul did, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, and whose father was a Greek. So Timothy, therefore, is Jewish because Jewishness comes through the mother. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke very well of young Timothy. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so Paul circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And though he was Jewish, he was irregular because he hadn't been circumcised and therefore Paul says to Timothy, get yourself circumcised because if you're coming on the mission to me, we're going to be speaking to Jews and the Jews won't listen to you if they know that you're an uncircumcised Greek. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. As Paul got two standards here. Here he is. He's battled against the inclusion of circumcision. And then at the first opportunity, he says to Timothy, well, get yourself circumcised. But he wouldn't have said that to Timothy if people had said, well, Timothy must be circumcised to be a real, a real Christian, an authentic Christian. But because circumcision's neither here nor there, if it serves the gospel, then, Timothy, get yourself circumcised. After all, you can imagine the conversation. After all, Timothy, it's a neutral surgical act. And if it serves the gospel, if it causes them to listen to the gospel bearer, well, get yourself circumcised. And the next time you're tempted to preach a sermon about timid Timothy, bear that in mind. Because it was Timothy. Oh, it's all very well for you to say that it's a neutral surgical act, but it's my circumcision that's involved and without anaesthetic. And so enough of this timid Timothy stuff. Does Paul have a double standard? Of course not. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, said that the Apostle Paul in non-essentials was like a reed. He'd be blown around. But in essentials, he was an iron pillar. You couldn't move him. Circumcision, part of the gospel, never. Uh, that's a neutral act. Can if it suits. If it serves the gospel, great. But as long as it's not seen to be a part of the gospel. Dear friends, here is the legacy of Acts chapter 15. God accepts us as we are in Christ. Great truth. Every church I've ever been involved with has been a culturally diverse church. My first church in Wee War, just out of Moree, 75% Americans who had come to Australia to grow cotton. Americans have their own cultural preferences. And it's a great testimony to their maturity that they made no of the, none of those cultural preferences part of the gospel. My last church was a Chinese church, many different cultural perspectives. And it's a testimony also to their maturity 
that they made none of their cultural preferences part of the gospel. You see, making some aspect of culture a Christian essential or a Christian imperative is to be rejected. Now, I th as a parent, I had to keep reminding myself of that. As a parent, I'd go sometimes, we had five children, four of them were born very close together, and at one stage, I remember, we all went to the polling booth together. So here I was with four of our children, all of them who were going to vote. And they're talking about what they're going to vote. Oh, they're going to vote left. They're going to vote uh, green. Oh, dear, dang. Oh, please, God, give me, give me control. And I think, look, keep your mouth shut. As long as they're in Christ, that's all I want them to be. And so I don't want to get waylaid by m more minor matters. I want them to focus on where they stand in Christ by faith. And as a parent, I don't want to be waylaid by that. A friend of mine had a church in Perth. It was at a major intersection. And one Sunday, they all came to church and saw that on the sign outside the church, someone had put a big cross through the sign. The sign said, you're welcome. But the sign that was, went through the sign, you're welcome, was the word if. The welcome at this church is conditional. It's an if. On what basis does God accept me? He accepts me and you on the basis of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, full stop. Whoever you vote for, whatever your educational background, whatever your hobbies, wherever you were born, full stop. It is because of Christ's life, death and resurrection that I am instantly and eternally right with God because of the work of the Lord Jesus. Look at chapter 16. Here's a well-to-do merchant. Here is a slave girl fortune teller. Here is a jailer and his family. So much in common? No, virtually nothing in common. Their gender, their status, but they've come into a community in which there is no Jew, Greek, slave, free, male or female. There is no mention of their circumcised state. They are now all one in Christ. On one occasion, I remember in the outer western suburbs of Sydney, which is pretty rough, I went out to a place to meet a man that I was going to talk to about joining the faculty of our college. And as we sit down, the place where we met was a coffee shop, but it was also a licensed coffee shop, so you could buy beer. And as we sat there having our coffee and I'm trying to encourage this man to join our faculty, I noticed that three people came in uh, two men and a woman, and they were obviously motorbike people. Uh, they had their leathers on. I noticed the blokes had big hairy beards. They had jewellery dropping from every ear. They had pierced different appendages in their body. And the lady also came in and she had bare shoulders and she had tattoos and they all had tattoos and they had their leathers on and they sat at the table about three or four tables over from us and they were drink drinking big schooners of beer. And I thought, strike, I don't want to go near any of them. Out of western suburbs, they're rough. So I said to my friend, I'll get up and pay for the drinks, the coffee. So as I'm going over to pay for the coffee, the biggest, hairiest bloke says, you're David Cook, aren't you? I said, yes. 
He said, come here. And I went over to his table. And there are the three of them sitting reading Knowing God by J.I. Packer with the study guide. And I thought, what? Leathers, tattoos, jewellery, piercing, drinking beer? They can't be Christians, can they? Out of western suburbs of Sydney? Of course they can. A tremendous variety, shape, sizes, interests, political affiliation, socioeconomic status, wealth, one. Because of faith in Jesus Christ. Acts 15, this minute. If you come to Jesus by repentance and faith, without circumcision, without baptism, freely, contrary to deserving, immediately, unreservedly, undeservedly, forever, you'll receive forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit and a perfect standing in God's holy family. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. When uh, we were going to send our boys to school in Sydney, we chose a school in which the headmaster, we read that he had a bullying hotline. He had been bullied as a, head, as a boy himself when he was at school. So he was determined to have a school in which there was no bullying. And if any parent suspected that their son was being bullied, they could ring the bullying hotline, which would get straight through to his office or straight through to his home after office hours. He said, don't ring me for any other reason on that line. Don't ring me to talk about your son's academic progress, only to report bullying. And when you think about that, who is the great bully of history? The great bully of human history is always religion, isn't it? Religion is the biggest bully because religion is persistently cruel. Religion, all religions, as well as unbiblical Christianity, says the same thing. It says you must do the impossible and if you don't do the impossible, you'll be threatened with terrible punishment. You'll be in hell or apart from God forever. Now, isn't that cruel? Only biblical Christianity doesn't say that. Biblical Christianity says you can't do anything so that God has done it all on your behalf. But all other religions are actually finally a bully. It's done. That's the true gospel. The substitutionary death has taken place for you. And therefore, when I come to the deathbed of one of my parishioners and he says to me, oh, Mr Cook, I don't know whether I've done enough. You haven't done enough. I don't know whether I've been good enough. You haven't been good enough. But Jesus Christ has done everything that is necessary. And Jesus Christ, through his goodness, brings you into the presence of God and his bodily resurrection is God's guarantee for you of your acceptance. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus plus nothing that we are saved. What does that new book say? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus only. Uh, when my mum and dad died... My mother back back in 2009, uh, they have two daughters and me, their son, and it was my responsibility to make all the final arrangements. And so I said to my sisters, um, we'd better get a gravestone for mum and dad. 
And they said, I said, why don't I work on that and I suggest the words for the gravestone and put them before you and see what you think. And um, I thought about, started to think about that. My parents were converted, as I said, back in 1962. My father gave my mother uh, a copy of the old Presbyterian hymn book. And in the front, he wrote May 410, be a constant source of joy and encouragement for you. I've still got that book. And hymn 410 was a bonner hymn. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad, and found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. I thought, no, that doesn't quite fit. And then I thought, well, a, a word of scripture, always, always appropriate. But there was none that I really thought was just right. Then I found another bonner hymn. And I put these words to my sister, to my sisters, and they were thoroughly delighted with me to have the words of the great Bonahim written on my parents' gravestone. This is their testimony, and if you're in Christ, this is your testimony. Upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. Upon another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Jesus Christ, they're all. That's the truth. Not his life and mine, not his death and any contribution I make. Upon a life I didn't live, upon a death I didn't die. And that is why Peter, Barnabas and Paul make such a strong stand, no inclusion. There is only one. Not one version, there is only one. And if anyone departs from preaching this one, let him be eternally condemned because he will be bringing eternal condemnation on anyone who believes this counterfeit gospel. Let's pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for today. We thank you for this brief survey up to this point in the book of Acts. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that there is no greater tonic in the realm of the Spirit than a thorough reading of this book. Send us away. From here we pray, Heavenly Father, uh, with a renewed commitment to your purpose, to be a part of it, to know the fullness of your Holy Spirit within us and to have confidence in him as he causes us to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus to your glory so that people might be saved by hearing and believing it. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.